your Bibles and turn to the book of Ezra. A little left of Job. We find ourselves in Ezra chapter 3. And by way of brief reminder, in Ezra chapter 1, especially in the verse 1, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, we learned that the word of the Lord is an inspired word. We learn that we get interpretation from Scripture, and we even see the influence of the word of the Lord as it stirs up the spirit of Cyrus. And when we looked at chapters 1 and 2 together, we saw God's people being prepared to enter his presence and worship. And today in Ezra chapter 3, I offer this theme, our unity in Christ in this age and the age to come. We're going to approach this study under five points. They are in your outline. Communion, courage, construction, cry, and consummation. And it occurs to me that each one of these points could stand on their own as a sermon, as many sermons, and yet it does seem best to me still as I'm only up here irregularly to continue to tackle Ezra about a chapter at a time. So I hope that it whets your appetite for the deep and wonderful truths in scripture, and perhaps you'd even like to read Ezra on your own afterwards. But I press on. Let me read Ezra chapter 3, and then we will ask the Lord for help. Ezra chapter 3. I'm reading this out of the ESV. When the seventh month came, and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place. For fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year, after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, made a beginning. Together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity, they appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord. 
according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Let us pray and ask for the Lord's help this morning as we approach Ezra chapter 3. Lord, your word is perfect, and I am not. I pray, Lord, that the words that best edify you, that best enrich our spirits to worship you and love one another come forth. Help us by your spirit to have these words pressed on our hearts. And we say these things in Jesus' name, amen. Point number one, communion. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. The children of Israel were in the town. So where were they prior to being in the towns? They were in Babylon. They were in Babylon. We're right at the very end of the exile. They left Babylon in the spring, and we find out in Ezra chapter 7 that this is about a four-month journey. So it takes them about four months to go from Babylon to the towns around Jerusalem. And perhaps you're thinking, wait, I thought Jerusalem was the town. Think of it like an empire. Jerusalem is the central town, but the people lived in all types of outskirts towns. This would have all been the area that they might have thought of as Jerusalem. The children of Israel were in these towns, barely gotten there, by the way. Four months from the spring, we know the seventh month, it is around the harvest time. So they had just shown up. They had just shown up. Imagine moving Packing your family and your goods. Remember I gave you that picture of the people uh, traveling the great distance to go to where the Lord called them? They had just shown up, hands full of business in their homes. Think of the types of things would be on your mind after a four-month journey moving. Where, how about where do I get food? Pretty sure there's not supermarkets set up for them necessarily. Who There is a tailor that can help repair our travel-worn garments. Can anybody help me mend my tools? Can anybody help me build a fence so I can keep my animals? Maybe for us, we can think of the end of road trips that we've taken. I know not many of us have traveled four months to move, but many of us has traveled four hours to go on vacation or 15 hours. Imagine the work you have on the other end of a long journey. They had every excuse to be occupied. And yet, as John Trapp says, Even though they were scarce, yet warm in their nests, they still gathered as one man. Zephaniah 3.9 has similar language. And as it talks about the day of the Lord, it says that the people with one voice gather in ESV of one accord, in the King James with one consent. And in the NASB, it says the people gather shoulder to shoulder. So the children of Israel gather as one man, shoulder to shoulder, to Jerusalem. And they go to Jerusalem up the hill. 
to a holy place. The people of God, they come to Mount Zion, gathered as one. See Christ in this picture. Christ is the representative of the people of God. He gathers himself. He's the head of God's people, and he climbs up the hill. He went to Zion, and he went up to Golgotha. And you could think of uh, verse 3-1, if we could rephrase it to what Christ did. When the perfect time came, and the people of God were scattered and lost, the person of Christ went, one man, to Jerusalem. He went first on our behalf as our example. Pastor Perkins preaching through Ephesians helped us to understand this in 123, the head of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. So this prefigures what Christ does. See also the communion of the saints in that the people gather as one man. We say this in the Apostles' Creed. We say we believe in the communion of saints. If you have a, a confession handy, we confess it in our confession. Chapter 27, paragraph 1, it says thus, All saints that are united to Jesus Christ, their head, by his spirit and faith, although they are not made thereby one person with him, have fellowship in his graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. And being united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, in an orderly way, as do conduce to their mutual good, both in the inward and outward man. Our confession talks about the communion of saints. It says we who are united to Christ, we have fellowship with him, and we are united to one another. We're united to each other in love. You and me and him and her, we're united together in love. And what else? We get to share in each other's gifts and graces. And also we're obliged to do such. It says in our confession, we're even obliged to do that. What have we done this morning? We've left our homes, have we not? Anybody have no cares at home? Probably that's not true. We've left aside our daily business to come here and to share in each other's gifts. And we stand shoulder to shoulder, don't we? We stand with one voice. Is that the way you think of it? Do you realize that your presence here this morning is a gift to me? Did you know that? Did you know that it is a gift to me and a gift to each other and that we share, we share these things together? When you say thanks be to God, when you sing the hymns, when you hear the sermon, when you say hello, this is a gift. And it's a sign. It's a sign to our children. It's a sign to our visitors. It's a sign to the world that we share a great love for each other in Christ. And we have gifts to give to each other. And each other are the gifts. We are the gifts to each other. So come and be unified in church. And when you don't come, don't rob me of that gift. Come together in anticipation of a great weekly revival that is happening here every Lord's Day. Whether you lead the song or sing the song, whether you read the verses or listen, whether you take the bread or hand out the bread, prepare the sermon or listen, in either way, this is a gift that we're giving to each other. And it's a grace. It says in Romans chapter 1, 
11 and 12. Hear what Paul says to Rome. I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, what does he say? That we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. The communion of saints is mutual encouragement in Christ. This is a gift and a grace, and dare I say, an obligation that we have to each other. Let us not neglect that. Let us rejoice in it. Paragraph two is something you can go on and read on your own if you like. I'll just call out one little note in it. It says also in the communion of saints that we relieve each other in outward things according to their several abilities and necessities. I know I need many things in my life. And brothers and sisters, you relieve me of these burdens sometimes by being in my life, by being such a gift to me. And that is what I think is on display here. We gather as one man to the church to worship the Lord. We do this thing because we believe in Jesus Christ. And what is our second point? Courage. Listen in verses 2 and 3. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. A brief note about Jeshua, the son of Josadak, called Joshua in other places. In Zechariah, we learn that he is charged to walk in the ways of God, Keep the requirements of the law, rule God's house, take charge of God's courts, and by fulfilling these duties, he is granted access to the inner temple. This is a type of Christ if there ever was one. Jeshua, the son of Josadak, prefigures Christ. And in Zechariah, in these visions, the name Jeshua is used to look forward to the perfect Joshua to come. And here we see Jeshua, the son of Josadak, Building the altar of God. And let's talk about an altar for a minute. Uh, This is a quote that I think is helpful. We could say, it is no exaggeration that the most visible sign of one's devotion to the true God in the worship of the old covenant is the building of an altar and a traveling to it for an act of sacrifice. It may be one of the most distinct images of one's devotion under the old covenant. And the Old Testament story is uh, one of one altar in one place, the central sanctuary of Jerusalem's temple. The altar is central. We read about this, actually, in our Old Testament reading, Deuteronomy. You can turn to Deuteronomy 12 if you want. I'm headed there in just a moment. What's interesting is that in the Old Testament, basically any time altars is plural, it's nearly synonymous with pagan influence. The altars tear those down and build the altar. And do you build it anywhere you want? No, you build it where it belongs. Deuteronomy 12, 2 through 5. Pastor Perkins just mentioned this just in brief. I'll read you again. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess served their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars 
and burn down their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation. There you shall go. There you shall go. The altar is central. Not the altars, the altar. Whoever builds it, by the way, in the Old Testament, sometimes we hear about Abraham, Joshua, David, Solomon. It's never their temple. It's the altar of the Lord. The altar of the Lord that's built. And why did they build the altar? It says because they're afraid. They're afraid, so they build an altar. We're not at home. Home was Babylon. Remember, we talked about it last time I was up here. We built our families. We lived there. We planted gardens in Babylon. Now here we are somewhere else. We're scared. And they're being seen as trespassers as they re-enter Jerusalem. This is unpacked further in Ezra. But to suffice it to say, the folks that stayed back there offered their own brand of religion. And now these old fuddy-duddies from Babylon are coming back in and telling us what's what. And they're threatening any scrap of power that we've managed to put together as we've kind of been our own rabble-rousers here in Jerusalem. So as the Israelites come back, they are unpopular, and they're afraid. So like any good person does when they're afraid, they built bomb shelters, stored up a bunch of food, bought guns and ammo, built fences and walls, obsessed about the news endlessly. No, that's not what they did. They built the altar of the Lord. They knew they were an unequal match to those people around them. They had no recourse. It says, have we many enemies? I think Matthew Henry says. Then it is good that we have God as our friend. Let us run to him first. Don't stop your correspondence with him, but increase it ever more. Make good use of those fears by being driven to your knees. So when they were afraid, they built the altar. And what does this altar point towards? The altar points towards Christ. First the people do, and now the altar does. Hebrews 13.10 says that we have an altar from which those who officiate in the tabernacle have no right to eat. The altar is Christ. Remember when Fikrek preached so many years ago on Revelation 6.9, he reminded us that the souls of the martyrs in heaven are hiding under what? The altar. They're hiding beneath the altar like chicks gathered under wings. Christ is the altar. What else is Christ? He's the sacrifice on the altar. Chad Vegas said at our last pastor's conference, Christ offered his humanity on the altar of his deity. Of course, if you're afraid, what else could you do? But run to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Also, Christ is the priest. The only one pure enough to make that sacrifice. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Be encouraged instead. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can you find any other friend so faithful? Who will share with you all of your sorrows? He knows our every weakness, just like he knew these people's weaknesses, and he drew them to himself, and they built the altar. And they took courage. They took courage by going to the Lord in prayer and worship. 
And that is what we do here this morning. We take courage from the Lord when we go to him. We gather shoulder to shoulder, benefactors of the better altar, better priest, and better sacrifice. In 1 Thessalonians 5.11, it says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. And how? In Christ. In Christ. We're going to come back to this next short section actually, and we're going to end at the beginning because that seemed appropriate for some reason in my mind. So we're going to go to our third point, construction. Construction. Halfway through verse 6 through verse 9, it says it this way. But, this is after the altar was built, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and to the Tyrians, to bring cedar wood from Lebanon to the sea at Joppa, according to the permission they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, in the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, this is later now, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and the rest of their brothers, the priests and the Levites, and all who came from the captivity to Jerusalem, began the work and appointed the Levites from 20 years and older to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Then Jeshua, a different one if you care to note that, with his sons and brothers stood united with Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah and the sons of Henadad, with their sons and brothers, the Levites, to oversee the workmen in the temple of God. So what do they do? They construct, they began the work of building the house of the Lord. First things first, we build the altar and we offer worship to the Lord because we're afraid. Where else can we go? What else can we do? It's the most important thing we can do. We haven't even moved in yet. We're worshiping our Lord. And now we need to build the house of the Lord. They had the altar, but they didn't have the house. So the people, including Zerubbabel and Jeshua and everyone else who came from captivity, began the work. They started the project. Let's start it. It's fun to start things. They made the beginning. And the Lord even provides the means by providing money, food, drink, and oil for the builders and even cedar trees to come from far off. We're going to find out later that the work is very, very hard, by the way. It doesn't go very well. The people that don't like them don't like them in even more dramatic ways as it goes along. And so it's delayed many, many times. And they make their beginning but they struggle to see the work through to the end. Is this how the Lord does his work? Does the Lord struggle to see his work through to the end? No, he does not. They do eventually finish the temple, however, after many decades. Is their work everlasting? Is the temple that they build still standing? It's not. It fell down in A.D. 70. So it has to point us to something else. What could it point us to? It points us to the church. The church, it points us to being built out of a foundation on Jesus Christ. He builds the church on himself. We sang this. The church is one foundation. Here it says they build the foundation of the temple. And here it says the church is one foundation. It's Jesus Christ our Lord. What else could we be thinking of than Jesus? See the true and better Adam... Be the true and better altar upon which he offers the true and better sacrifice. 
and see the foundation of the true and better temple. So the temple that the exiles built was torn down in A.D. 70. Is that going to happen to the church? Are we an everlasting temple? What does it say in verse 3 of the song we sang this morning? The church is one foundation. The church shall never perish. Her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish. And he's with her to the end. Though there be those that hate her, this is going to happen in Ezra later, and strive to see her fail against both foe and traitor, she ever shall prevail. The church doesn't fail. These Old Testament signs point us towards something that is everlasting. We see here the beginning, and we look to the one who has no beginning, and whose kingdom has no end. No end. Our next point, the cry. The cry. We move on to verse 10, to the end of the chapter. We'll start with 10 and 11. Now, when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. They sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. They worshipped how? According to the directions of David. It says right there. I even thought, we talk enough about the regulative principle, I don't need to bring it up again, but we want to bring it up as often as Scripture brings it up. They worshipped in obedience to the directions of David, and they sang responsively. They sang in spirit, And in truth, do you see both of those things on display here? They sang accurately, and they sang with filled hearts, doing such according to the direction of Scripture. The same way our worship is meant to be regulated, ordered according to Scripture, but not cold. Remember what Pastor Sam Renahan said at the quarterly? It is okay that we send up our cries with filled hearts, full of truth, And what is it that they're saying? Turn to Psalm 136. Psalm 136 is the psalm that's quoted. For he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. Or in the ESV it says, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. Psalm 136 is what they're worshiping with as they are looking at the foundation of the temple being built. It's a long psalm, 26 verses, and at the end of each line, so 25 times, it is said, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. Why? For his steadfast love endures forever. And then in the next few verses, it actually unpacks the creation story. To him alone does great wonders. To him who by understanding made the heavens. To him who spread out the earth above the waters. 
made great lights, the sun to rule the day, the moon and stars to rule over the night. Give thanks to that God, for his steadfast love endures forever. That's what the Israelites are singing after being led out of Babylon, having first built the altar, and now seeing the foundation of the temple being laid. And then later, actually, in Psalm 136, it talks about the Exodus. To him who struck down the firstborn, his steadfast love endures forever, and brought Israel out from among them with strong hand and an outstretched arm. Continues to recount their experiences, and they praise the Lord each and every time. That's instructive, by the way. When you praise the Lord, look back at how faithful he has been to you, even when you are not faithful to him. The Lord is faithful. And when you are in trials and tribulations, yet still give thanks to the Lord, because his steadfast love endures forever. This is what they're singing. Of course, after 70 years in Babylon and facing the challenges ahead, they want to be comforted by the mercies God has already given them because that gives you great expectation of what? The mercies he'll keep giving you. Great is his faithfulness. Yet, in verse 12, it says, many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple, what did they do? They wept quietly and stoically off to the side like men should cry. Nope. With loud voice. They wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, while many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, so that the sound was heard from far, far away. I don't know if you still have your fingers by Psalm 136, but what's the very next psalm? It's 137. i help you count that. What is Psalm 137? How can we sing the Lord's song by the seas of Babylon, by the river of Babylon? So we see this bittersweet contrast even in the way the psalms are ordered. We see that the Lord is worthy to be praised And yet we find these times in the Christian experience that are difficult. In exile. And then brought home. But it's hard here at home too. They don't like us. We have no temple. The one they're building seems no good. Difficult are the times. Difficult. I think this could be an illustration of the age that we find ourselves in. First, I'll apply it in two different directions. John Trapp helpfully says, when these old men are weeping, remembering the greatness of the former temple, he says, let us do the same. When we compare our state of creation to our state of corruption, when we compare Adam and Eve in the state of creation to what came after, oh, they had everything they needed. Sinless, clean, and undefiled. Now we see so much stain and hurt. We weep to remember what the state of creation was like. Yet, of course, we send up our praises because the Lord has something so much better for us. So we can look backwards and say, that was 
uh, that is a, a good thing to mourn, the giving up of so much goodness. And yet, in God's providence and sovereignty, he provides through that something so much more. And so here we are being able to say, what? When peace like a river attends my soul? And when sorrows like sea billows roll. Either way, either way we can say, it is well. And just like the saints, the martyrs under the altar in Revelation 6, 9, they're crying out, how long? How long? How long? We can cry the same. Lord, in your time, but how long? How long until you come back and take away the pain and wipe away the last tear and settle all of these things finally? How long, Lord? Because right now, we have voices that send up praise and weeping. It's commingled right now, and it can be difficult. Revelation 1.7 says it this way. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Even so, amen. That is our state right now. Even when we have troubles at home. Even so, amen. Even when we can look back at times in our life that seemed more prosperous maybe family in greater harmony, maybe relationships that need work in a healthier state before, let's say. All the things that you may look back on your life, or where I often do, hundreds of years ago when the world was better and we weren't so polluted by modernity. No. Here we are today in this day and age. And the Lord hath put us here for his will and purpose. And so we see these things that are difficult, we have trials in our life, and yet we say what? Even so, amen. You have taught me to say, it is well, it is well. And furthermore, another illustration of how the present day is such a struggle can be found in Romans 7. At the end of Romans 7, Paul says what? I do things I don't want to do, and I don't do things I want to do. We live in a day of difficulty. But it's not too difficult. It's not confusing for us. Where do we take courage? We take courage from the Lord Jesus, who longs to gather us under his wings, keep us safely under his altar, protecting us until the day that he comes back. Sometimes our greatest defeat is Christ's greatest difficulty. Do you believe that? Do you trust him in those things? Sometimes our greatest sadness may be the most useful tool for the Lord. It says in 1 Peter that he suffered so we can have an example of what? How to be saved from suffering? It doesn't say that in mine. It says, so that we too can suffer. So the Christian life is one where you can't always distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the weeping. And that is okay. That is okay because we cry out, holy, holy, holy anyways. We cry it out with joy. And yet we must trust the Lord in this. Paul says in Romans 8, I consider the sufferings of this present day are what? 
not even worthy of being compared. Forget that they don't compare. I don't even think we ought to compare them to the glory that will be revealed to us. In Ecclesiastes 7.10, it actually gives us a direct admonishment. Let us not say, why were the former days better than these? Don't say that. Why was it so much better back then, before whatever, when I didn't have whatever, when whoever was or wasn't in my life? Let us not say, why were the former days better than these? Zechariah says, don't despise the days of small things. This is not a small day. This is the day of the Lord. Don't despise it. In our weakness, God is made strong. In our day of calamity and struggle, Christ is made known. So we can send up our cries of sorrow and pain in such a way that they are mingled with shouts of joy and praise. And by the way, together, shoulder to shoulder, with mutual strength and encouragement to each other, so that when one is weak, we can surround them and say, you are strong in Christ, even though this is happening. We are here for each other in such a way because Christ is here for us. But someday... Someday it'll be even better. Our final point, consummation, brings us back to the beginning. The seventh month. When the seventh month came. That's when our entire passage starts. In the seventh month. What is the seventh month? And why is it noteworthy? Why would we end on such a detail as this? Turn with me, if you can, to Leviticus chapter 23 to find out about the seventh month. I'm skipping through this, so um, I trust you to keep up if you can. In 23, starting, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest. You shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with blasts of trumpets, a holy convocation, just like we read that they did in Ezra. You shall not do any ordinary work, and you shall present a food offering. And later in 28, you shall not do any work on the very day, which is the day of atonement. The day of atonement happens in the seventh month. And further on in 31, he says, you shall not do any work. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest. Later in verse 34, On the 15th day of this seventh month, and for seven days, it is the Feast of Booths. It's the Feast of Booths to the Lord. And later on, we read, on the first day, it shall be a solemn day of rest, and on the eighth day, it shall be a solemn day of rest. And in verse 43, he says, I want your generations to know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths, When I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. So it's no coincidence that the Israelites return and find themselves in the seventh month. And they immediately keep it. Because the seventh month is the Sabbath of Sabbaths. The seventh month is the great month that points to the eternal state. Where there's no ordinary work. Where you rest first. It's a Sabbath of solemn rest. 
That's why the seventh month is so significant and why I want to go back to this as our helpful encouragement for what we have in the future. We're today in the day where we often can't distinguish the shouts of joy from the shouts of sorrow. Not sometimes, maybe more often than we even want to admit. But someday that's not going to be our situation. Someday we'll be in the seventh month forever. A day of atonement having already happened for us. And a sacrifice made once and for all. And what about the Feast of Booths? Strange translation, the Feast of Booths, right? The Feast of Tents often confused me when I was young. Why is that smack dab in the middle of this high seventh month? To remind them of the time when God had them dwell in tents, in booths, in tabernacles, in the desert. He says it in Leviticus 23. I made them dwell in booths. I made them. Why does this encourage us? I don't really want to live in a tent. I'd rather live in a house. I'm confused. What is the point of this? Because it shows us not only the eternal state of where we're headed, but it tells us in whom we rest. In whom we rest. John 1.14 says, The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. We are rested in Christ. The Feast of Booths prefigures him and points us to him. It's no coincidence that they are celebrating the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Jesus, in the eternal Sabbath month, where a day of atonement, they can look forward to a day where it will not have to be repeated. Ezra is pointing us towards this better future, this eternal future, where we will have mystic sweet communion with each other and with Christ face to face, except then it won't be commingled shouts of joy and shouts of sorrow. It'll be shouts of joy. Jesus comes as the better tabernacle to dwell with us. And then he does what? He gathers us and builds the church. Here we read about the foundation of the temple. Jesus is so much better because he's the foundation of the church. In the eternal rest, the children of God, look at 3.1. In the seventh month, the children of Israel... No, in the eternal rest, the children of God will go into his presence. By the perfect sacrifice, intercession, and rule of Christ, and will worship God shoulder to shoulder. We'll be encouraged. Even though today is a day mixed, someday it won't be. And so now is the day where we encourage each other in our great communion with each other. And we encourage each other towards Christ. And yet let us feel a sweet obligation to bear up one another's burdens. Show up, be part of the community of Christians. Give me the gift of your presence as I ought to give it to you. Let's not forget that. And encourage us how? To rest in Jesus. To rest in Jesus. He's made a way for us to go up to Zion. John Trapp says... Christ has made such a causeway to heaven. Maybe you'd say a highway to heaven, but that's a little too cheesy. So we'll say Christ has made up a causeway to heaven that we may well travel there from all coasts as the Jews did to Jerusalem for all their cities. So as these people, the children of Israel, gather to Jerusalem, Christ paves the way for us to be gathered to him in heaven. And we've done that this morning on his day, by his power. And that's why we sing, to God 
be the glory. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, holy, holy, holy is your name. Lord, your kingdom come soon. Lord, and yet will you sustain us and encourage us for another day, another week, another month, and another year, as long as it takes, Lord, until you return. And when we have sorrows, Lord, may we turn to you. May we be mutually encouraged one another towards you, Lord, trusting that even though the trials of today and the sufferings are real and they're hard and sometimes even confusing, they're not worthy, Lord, to be compared to what you have in store for us someday. Help us, Lord, to rest in that. Help us, Lord, to remember that. And Lord, help, please, for that day to come soon. In Jesus' name, amen.